Hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. As you know, we're in a building campaign. We're moving down the street uh, a mile from here to 1225 William Blunt Drive. We started that campaign a few weeks ago. And I'm going to take just a couple of minutes here to kind of give you an update, a little bit of a recap. Maybe you missed the first announcement, that type of thing. Let you guys know what's going on. That'll be a couple of minutes. And then we'll say a prayer and we'll we'll jump right into a a regular sermon uh, from there. So that's where we're headed uh, for this a building campaign. I think we have a slide that gives you a little bit of a rundown uh, or a breakdown of what the expense is. We bought this building, um, again, a mile down the street. This right across the street from William Blunt High School, which we're really excited about, for about $2.1 million. And we've got major renovations happening at that place that we estimate are going to be about $1.4 million to do. Now, that's an estimate. We've tried to put in a lot of cushion there, but there's, there's going to be a range, uh, but we're hoping we can do it for that or maybe even less, maybe more. We'll see. We're going to do our best. We're going to do major renovations in this place inside and out. Every single square inch is going to feel brand new. Um, I just want to acknowledge, just kind of while we're all here together, that doesn't look great right now. You drive by and it's like, ooh, that's why we don't have a sign up yet. We're not yet ready to claim it. <laughs> like somebody owns that place. Let's let them wonder for a while. When it looks a little better, we'll put a sign up, future home of. Okay, just not yet. Okay. Uh, So, and some people are like, can we do something about the landscape? And the truth is, that's all going to get torn up. So much is changing. Uh, We're going to sprinkle the building. We're putting new HVAC units everywhere. Everything that can be painted and updated is going to be painted and updated. We're going to double the parking lot. There's just so much that's going on. And we'll have almost twice as much space as we have here, which as you can tell, we can use. This is one of three services today, not one of one. Um, And uh, almost quadruple the amount of land. We're really excited to have an opportunity uh, to grow even beyond that space if that's how the Lord leads at some point down the road. Now, this is a 10-week campaign where we're talking about this. And then toward the end of the campaign, actually beginning two weeks from today, we're going to have a a three-week giving period. And during that three-week period, Basically, all that means is uh, you'll, you're, if you're giving, you're going to turn in your pledge cards, all right? So there's no, like, we're just going to do church. There won't be any pomp or ceremony. We're not making a whole big hullabaloo out of it. But we are, for three weeks, going to say, hey, if you're going to give, now's the time to give. So that starts two weeks from now, and we'll go for three weeks. Look, the experts told us not to do it that way. They say, here's how you do it. You have one big night that is super emotional. There's a great big magical crescendo. And then you ask everybody to give on the spot. And that feels icky to me. I didn't like that. Instead, what I would like for us to do is seek the Lord, not give under compulsion, not give because we're all worked up in a magical moment, but because we want to give cheerfully as the Lord has directed us to give. I don't want you to give what I can convince you to give. I want you to give what Jesus tells you to give. Now, there are two ways um, that you can give, and we're asking folks as they're able to give two separate ways. And in order to do that, this is a, we're calling these feasibility charts. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but if you have your booklet um, somewhere at home or whatever, it's this page where we have a couple of, uh, what the point is of these charts, let me explain to you, is basically to show us 
that it is well within our reach. There's a feasible way for us to reach these goals. And by the way, if we stay close to on budget and we raise the $2 million we hope to raise, we'll be debt-free at the end of that, which would be absolutely remarkable. And what we're praying for, we'll be so freed up to do so much more work for the kingdom under those circumstances. And so we talked about giving a one-time gift and then making a monthly pledge over the space of three years. And so we've given this, again, a feasibility chart. Here's one way in which we might get to a million dollars in one-time gifts. Um, and this is based on 103 households giving. There are way more than 103 households who give in this church, way more. Um, and so this shows us that it's within reach. And I just wanted to put this up here because it's in the booklet. And I want to acknowledge what I think is obvious and might go without saying, but I think it needs to be said, which is um, there's, this is just a suggestion of how we might get there. I don't want you to pick a line. I want you to hear from Jesus and obey. And here's the thing. Um, I just want to acknowledge this. Uh, the first line there is a $1,000 one-time gift. There are lots of people in this church who could not begin to give $1,000. Um, that's an emergency fund. We work with people to try to get to an emergency fund. There are people for whom it would be irresponsible, okay? And so we're not trying to twist your arms in any way in regard to that. We recognize that. We acknowledge that. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are people in this church for whom giving $50,000 would not be sacrificial. Instead, the Lord might lead them to, live, to give a great deal more. The point is, wherever we're at, we want to hear from the Lord and obey. Not because you got your arm twisted, but because your heart is warmed by the leadership of the Lord. We give in a way, as we've always said over the years, radical, sacrificial, and spirit-led. So what in your life looks radical, sacrificial, spirit-led? The other chart is about uh, monthly giving and a way we might get there. Again, with about 100 uh, givers or 140, there's actually way more than that again. Um, in our church. And again, same thing. I just want to point out the obvious. There are people in our church who couldn't possibly find $50 a month. Uh, and we acknowledge that. There are people in the church who frankly rely on us to help them with that $50 a month. And we're buying groceries and we're helping people in urgent need in the life of this church all of the time. So I just want to acknowledge that as obvious. And again, at the other end of the spectrum, there are people for whom giving $500 a month would not be sacrificial. And so these are not prescriptions. We're not telling you what to do. Instead, we're saying this is a way that we could feasibly get to this goal and then it might work out within the life of our church. And the goal, again, is that we can, through one-time giving and pledges, get to $2 million and the goal from there to be debt-free as soon as possible, which would be remarkable. Um, please feel free to ask any questions anytime. I'm not offended by questions. If you ask me a question, I don't feel challenged. I feel like you give a rip, and I like that. I like that you care. So don't hesitate to ask um, uh, now or at any time along the way. And one last time, in two weeks, we will have the first of three, three giving weeks. <laughs> And for three weeks, and at the end of those three weeks, we will say, hey, here's what was given, here's what was pledged. Some people, by the way, might need to wait until a year-end thing before they give. That's okay. Just give us the number that you intend to give up front, and we'll just consider that between now and the end of the year, however that works. And then we're going to celebrate, um, because I think as we let the Lord lead us, there will be more than enough. All right. Speaking about more than enough. It's more than enough to talk about that. Let's say a prayer, and let's get into our text for the day. King Jesus, thank you for your kind presence in this place. Uh, would you make us aware of it, Lord, if we are not already? And now, as we look to your word, I just ask that uh, you'd soften our hearts, um, that if there's anything here for us, and I really believe that there is, that we would hear it, that we would receive it, um, that we would apply it in obedience to our lives. 
So Lord, we ask you humbly, would you let your kingdom come and your will be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, today, Mark chapter 10, uh, and we're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler. If you're a church kid, you know this one, all right? And if you're anything like me, then you probably already know where this message is going. You go, okay, yeah, I know this story. Rich young ruler didn't give all his money away, and so he's the big loser in the story. So it's obvious where we're going here. Same thing for us. We're in a building campaign. That's the conclusion. If you don't give all your money, you're a loser too. Let's pray. Uh, no, <laughs> that's actually, sincerely, that's not where I'm headed with this at all today. So if your guard goes up, I understand, but that's not where I'm going at all. Here's the, I've thought about this a lot recently. I think I've been reading this story wrong. I think I've been reading it wrong for a, a, at least a couple of reasons that I can identify. Uh, one is that I've got some serious biases baked in before I ever even start looking at this text. Um, first off, this fella, the rich young ruler, um, he's not a very sympathetic character, is he? Will you imagine this guy today? All right, on Twitter with his blue check mark. Don't you know, I mean, the Twitter mob would just be frothing at the mouth just waiting to cancel this guy. Like, just do one thing, right? Because he's rich, strike one. He's young, which means he's probably privileged, and it was all handed to him. Strike two, and he's empowered. Strike three. All right, let's take this guy down. There was a time when somebody being rich, young, and powerful meant that they would be seen as a hero almost no matter what they did. They'd get away with horrible things. That's the way it used to be. And now, interesting, that's flipped in this context. And because he's a rich, young ruler, we're eager to see him go down. Um, and we're just waiting for him to blow it. And frankly, fair enough, because people like him usually do. Rich, young, and powerful. This is an almost guaranteed formula for disaster in someone's life. You guys have noticed this, right? Rich, young, and powerful. That means disaster. And so we read this. Okay, rich, young ruler. Okay, he sounds great. Okay, so that's already my bias. And then secondly, and this is at least for the church kids in the room, which I know is not all of us, but that does include me. Um, we know how the story ends. From the first word, we're like, yeah, I know how this goes. He's going to blow it. He's going to absolutely blow it. And I, I wish that we could, we can't, but I wish we could read this story for the first time all over again anew and read it with fresh eyes. Because even as we read it, even as I read it, I don't want to give him credit for the things that he's doing right. Instead, as I'm reading it, I'm just waiting for that critical moment, because I know it's coming, a critical moment where he screws the whole thing up and he says no to Jesus. Like, right to his face, he says no to Jesus and then just walks away. And he's like this sad, tragic figure who just blew it. The thing is, I just, the more I think about it, that's all a bit too reductive for me. If you ask me, that's too reductive. Um, I used to think uh, that this rich young ruler was just, he was a goat who missed the point. Um, but that was back in a time when being a goat meant something bad. So that's, that's different now. So let me explain to some of the young people in the room. There was a time when being a goat meant you were a chump, you were a sucker, you were an idiot. And now, let me explain to everyone else in the room, now if you're a goat, 
That's an acronym because our world is now run by acronyms. It's a goat for the greatest of all time. That's what goat means. You're, the, you're not a goat, which is bad. You're the goat, which is good. All right. This guy, are we all clear? Okay. <clears throat> this guy, the rich young ruler, I'll be clear. Um, he was neither. Okay. By the way, side note, I did this at the first service. I'm going to do it again. I know it's not on my notes. The conversation about the GOAT, by the way, in all caps, the acronym, greatest of all time, it's really that sort of bubbled out of basketball culture because who is the greatest of all time in basketball? And I just want to be very clear that there's no discussion to be had. Jordan. And I don't, I just, fair enough, that was the right response. I don't have a verse for it, but I'm looking. We're going to write this in the church law if I can find it, okay? It's Jordan. Anyway, weirdly enough, it came out of basketball where that's a settled question who the greatest of all time is, but nevertheless. Um, so we've got a goat, which is a chump, a sucker, who blows it. He's an idiot. And then we've got the goat, the greatest of all time. And this guy in this story, I want to be very clear, he was neither. In fact, he was, he was just like all of us, actually. He was somewhere in between the worst of all time, and the greatest of all time, like all of us. Um, the idea that he could do no wrong because he was rich, young, and powerful is incorrect. And the idea that he couldn't do anything right because he was rich, young, and powerful is also incorrect. He wasn't a goat or the goat. Now, that said, it's still a sad story. And it ends with the rich young ruler walking away sad. Which, to be clear, is how he came to Jesus. He came to Jesus sad, and he leaves Jesus sad. It's a cautionary tale. Just not quite in the way I've always thought of it. So, enough preamble. Let's read it. Mark chapter 10. We'll start in verse 17. We'll just read a verse, talk a little bit, read a bit, talk a bit. Verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's pause there for a second. I think it's fair to say, I know we've got our biases. Hopefully we put them to the side now. Because I think it's fair to say that he's off to a pretty good start right now, isn't he? I think he's doing great. When a story begins with someone literally running to Jesus, falling on their face before Jesus, as if before a king, and then asking a really great question, that's a great start. And the story probably isn't setting this person up to be a jerk. And he asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is where my bias against this guy starts to show and it starts to kick in because I want to pick apart that question. I look at that question through Christian theological lenses, and I'm like, uh-uh, that's the wrong question, man. I just want to be like, don't you get it, man? You don't do anything to inherit eternal life. It is a free gift of God's grace. It is all unmerited favor given to you. Don't you know about the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our living Lord? And the answer is no, he doesn't. He's a Jew, and that hasn't happened yet. I want to read this, like Christianity is not a thing when he comes to ask this guy the question. And I want to read, I want to, I want to judge his question through the lenses of saying, well, you blow it because you don't know the basic tenets of a faith that doesn't yet exist. That's not fair. Fact is, this is a great question 
for him or any other faithful Jew to be asking at this time and this place in history. Because this is the question that Jesus came to answer. And in that context, 2,000 years ago, in Jewish society, there was a tremendous amount of confusion about all things afterlife. It was really fuzzy. Eternal life, how do you get it? Is it really a thing? Some say yes, some say no. Is there a good place? Is there a bad place? That was all really hotly debated amongst the most faithful people in that context because all the afterlife stuff is just really, really fuzzy in the Old Testament. And they're just working through the Old Testament, and it's really fuzzy. And so everybody, like everybody, was super confused until Jesus came along and the writers of the New Testament came along and put a much finer point on that question. So the point is, this is a great question. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus, in response, verse 18, says, Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. So just real quick, this is how I picture this. It's, it's not right, but this is how I picture it. I picture this happening as if before a screen, okay? And I see it, I'm like watching the TV, right? And then there's Jesus on the screen, and he asks him the question. And then Jesus says, why do you call me good? Um, only God is truly good. And then there's this massive fourth wall break, and Jesus looks right at the camera, and he's like smiling. Because this is like a huge pile of foreshadowing. <laughs> he's like, he is God, and he is absolutely good, but he's just sort of leaving the breadcrumbs that he's going to pick up later on the other side of the cross. Okay, so verse 19, to answer your question, Jesus says, remember, how do we inherit eternal life? Here's the answer. He goes, you know the commandments. Don't kill people. Be faithful to your spouse. Don't steal stuff. Don't tell lies. Don't cheat people. Honor your parents. He's like, come on, like, you know... You know the stuff, man, the, the, big, the big ten, you know? It's like the stuff that we do as faithful Jews to live well in this world, to love our neighbors well. You know the list. That's the code. We live by a code. That's what he's saying. We live by a code, and you know the code. Verse 20, here's his reply. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. Okay. Um... Here's where I really want to jump on this guy's case. <laughs> I, want, I just want to go, really? Like, come on. Like, did you really just look the son of God in the eye and tell him that you have kept the Ten Commandments your entire life? You arrogant son of a gun. How can you possibly look at this of all people and say, I'm nailing it? The rest of us, frankly, we're, we're lucky to go a day without breaking at least a couple of them, okay? And, and you're telling me that you're batting a thousand for just years on end now. That's my knee-jerk reaction. I'm like, what, this guy, this guy. But once again, listen, my knee-jerk reaction is wrong, once again. When the Bible talks about a person being righteous, there's many people who, who are declared to be righteous in Scripture, Old Testament and New the Bible talks about someone being righteous or even someone being perfect. And believe it or not, there's a stack of people in the Bible who are called perfect. What? So that does not mean what it sounds like to our ears. Okay? There's some translation problems here. There's some stuff that gets lost over the centuries and the millennia. Okay? It does not mean absolute sinless perfection 
the way that you and I tend to think of it when we hear a word like that. We just read Jesus himself, remember the fourth wall break, saying that only God is truly good. No human can do that, can be truly good. When the Bible says that someone is righteous or good or even perfect, it does not mean absolutely perfect, flawless, sinless perfection. What it means is that is the type of person who is shaped profoundly by God's values, by God's principles, by God's laws. What it means is we're talking about a person who is submitted to the will of God and will follow him. Someone who could be counted on to be faithful, to be allegiant, to be perfect. No, that's kind of ridiculous, okay? But to be a faithful, allegiant, reliable, earnest, sincere follower of Christ whose values have been shaped by the values of God. That's what the Bible means when it says, yes, this person is righteous or even perfect or they're faithful, okay? By the way, if you're, want, if you're kind of pushing against that theologically and you're like, I don't know, preacher, I got a verse for that. Let me, I just, cool, you're a Bible nerd. I have a Bible nerd book for you. Uh, it's called God and Human Wholeness. And the subtitle is Perfection in Biblical and Theological Tradition. I should have made a slide for this, sorry, by Kent Yinger. If you want to know about it, I'll tell you more about it. Fair warning, it's real nerdy. You got to want it. Um, but it explains uh, thoroughly what I'm explaining to you now, which is when the Bible says someone's perfect, it doesn't sound to the Jewish ear 2,000 years ago the way it sounds to our ears now, which is a good thing to know because we can hear things like Jesus saying, be ye perfect even as I am perfect. And everybody's like, well, I'm out. No, you're not. That's not what it means, okay? So deep breath. So why am I saying all this? Here's why. This guy, when he says, I've, I've done that, he isn't saying that he's been batting a 1,000. What he's saying is he's let the commandments shape who he is and he's been faithful to God over the years. And he's lived his life according to the values of God. And then looking back on this text, Jesus doesn't correct his arrogance like you would think he would. Um, instead, he affirms his faithfulness. Let's look at the text, verse 21. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him, which of course he did. And then he says this, there's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Let's pause here for a second. It, Jesus doesn't say, no, you arrogant punk, you haven't kept the commandments your entire life. No, he goes, he says, yeah, you have. Well done. But still, there's one thing that you lack. I just want to acknowledge, like, that's a pretty solid place to be, don't you think? That's a pretty solid place. That's somewhere between, a, between being a goat and the goat, okay? A solid place to be. When God himself affirms your faithfulness and says, Here's a, you only lack one thing, it's a solid spot. And that one thing that he lacked is essentially what most of us are lacking now, whatever the thing may actually be. Here's what I'm saying. This is a sincere, intentional, earnest, faithful man who has surrendered almost all of his life to God. Just, just not all. Maybe we could relate to that a bit. And then Jesus exposes the part that, for him, is being held back. That's the uh, second half now, verse 21. Jesus says to him, Go, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Let's walk this thing out. Verse 22, at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had 
many possessions. This man has surrendered, I don't know, 90-something percent of his life to God. And that, that last couple percentage points, that's what's keeping him from experiencing real joy and real freedom. It's those last couple percentage points is why he came to Jesus sad and why he walked away from Jesus sad. It's what's keeping him from eternal life. Eternal life, not just off in the sweet by and by, floating around on a cloud somewhere. None of that's in the Bible, by the way. But for the here and the now, God's kingdom coming to his life, to him, in that context, that he might have joy, that he might be truly free. Something's holding him back. That's a place where I think so many of us could be partially surrendered to the Lord mostly surrendered to the almost entirely surrendered to the Lord, but not quite all the way. And then for us, just as it is with the rich young ruler, we often find ourselves missing out, being robbed of joy, of freedom, of life that's truly life, of abundant life, because of that last bit that we haven't given over to him. Maybe we can relate to this guy a little bit. And still, you might go, I don't know, man. I just can't imagine that I could look Jesus himself, I mean the Messiah, right before him. I don't think I could look him right in the eye and just refuse to say, to surrender. I just, I couldn't look at him and say, no, I wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. All right. I think I probably agree. I think probably we wouldn't do that because on balance, Most of us are just too religious for that. So instead, we look Jesus right in the eye, swear on all things holy that we will surrender everything, and then we just don't. Like, I'm I'm really not sure that's any better, guys. I I don't think that's any better. I read this story, and I think maybe this guy isn't just some arrogant chump. Maybe he is a faithful earnest, sincere man who is just, I mean, just at the precipice, just one step away from something great. One step away from freedom and life and victory and joy. And I read this, it it has a sad ending. There's no way around that. But I'm left wondering what the next chapter is in this guy's life. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us. I wish it did. Maybe I'll ask one day. I don't know. Because I, maybe this is just because I'm a total optimist, and I am. I will admit that. But still, I read this, and I'm, I'm betting this guy figures it out. I'm just betting he figures it out. He's so close. I think he's going to look back and reflect and go, in the moment, I made the wrong thing the main thing. I think he gets it. Now, we got to point out this because it's just too obvious in this moment to not do it. It is highly instructive to us, of course, that for this guy, money is the holdup. Now, I want to be clear, the holdup for him being money, that is descriptive and not prescriptive. And, and by that, I mean <clears throat> it is describing the problem that this guy has. It is not, the scripture is not diagnosing all of us with the same problem. Okay, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Maybe that's the problem with you. Maybe it's not. Maybe you're all good and you don't have this problem. Right on. 
Maybe money is the holdup. Maybe it isn't. But it does highlight the thing that for so many people is the last thing that finally gets handed over to the Lord. And it is the thing, money is the thing, that Jesus highlights over and over again. The most, by far, he highlights money as the thing that will steal our hearts from the Lord, rob our allegiance, and ultimately, if we're not careful, be our God. So, we would be wise, all of us, all right, regardless of how this works out, all of us would be wise to evaluate on that front. Is that the thing that we hold back from him? Maybe for you it is, maybe it isn't. It's, it's at least possible, right? It's at least a possibility. And according to Jesus, there's a really good chance that that's the last thing that finally is given over to him. Now, we all know we're in a building campaign. Just so you know, deep breath. My point here is not just write a big check and make a big pledge and then you know you're good, okay? No. Um, I mean, feel free to do that, but <clears throat> I, I will say this. There is in this, as we consider this and as we step into this campaign and get close to the giving period, um, there's an opportunity for each of us to search our own hearts and go, okay, this need, this, this goal that we're working together uh, toward, this is an opportunity for us to get some real clarity about where we're at with what is, according to Jesus, the biggest competitor for our affections. This gives us a chance to pull that in to focus in a way that we might not have otherwise. Okay, so there's that. Now, I'm about to close, um, and I am going to close today by reading a poem, which <laughs> is so cliche to end my sermon with a poem that it is ridiculous. And I want you to know I've been doing this for 18 years. I have never once closed a sermon with a poem out of just sheer principle. There have been plenty of good opportunities, and I'm like, I'm cheesy. I'm not that cheesy. I'm not ending with a sermon just, or with a poem, just three, three points and a little thing at the end. And, and I've thought to myself, that's what cheesy, dusty old preachers who have been behind a pulpit for half a century do, okay? But turns out, a little older now, and so now, at the end of my life, just kidding, I'm 41. Okay. Uh, now, those dusty old preachers who've been at it for 50 years are kind of my hero. <laughs> so, I am going to proudly conclude with a poem. <laughs> no apologies. Uh, and David, you can come on up. And uh, if you would, just play through 42 choruses of Just As I Am. We're going old school today. We're doing a poem. We're going to play this thing on repeat till everybody comes for it. Just kidding. We're not doing that at all. Play whatever you want. <clears throat> uh, honestly, man, this poem is so good. It's called Covenant. Uh, it's written by Margaret Halasco. And it's a real simple setup. Here's the setup. This is God the Father bringing his son to your house looking for a place to stay. All right? That's the setup. Okay, here we go. The father knocks at my door, seeking a home for his son. Rent's cheap, I say. I don't want to rent. I want to buy, says God. I'm not sure I want to sell, but you might come in to look around. I think I will, says God. 
I might let you have a room or two. I like it, says God. I'll take two. You might decide to give me more someday. I can wait, says God. I'd like to give you more, but it's difficult. I need some space for me. I know, says God, but I'll wait. I like what I see. Hmm. Maybe, maybe I can let you have another room. I really don't need that much. Thanks, says God. I'll take it. I like what I see. I'd like to give you the whole house, but I'm not sure. Think on it, says God. I wouldn't put you out. Your house would be mine, and my son would live in it. You'd have more space than you'd ever had before. I don't understand at all. I know, says God, but I can't tell you about that. You'll have to discover it for yourself. That can only happen if you let him have the whole house. A bit risky, I say. Yes, says God, but try me. I'm not sure. I'll let you know. I can wait, says God. I like what I see. Not bad, huh? So, for Selah, we take a moment to pray and reflect. And to reflect on this particular image. King of glory knocks on your door and says, I'd like to have the whole thing. Every room, every dark spider-filled corner, every skeleton-filled closet, I'd like to have the whole thing. And then we are left to answer. For many of us, it may very well be true that we've given him just darn near the whole thing but there's still that one corner or that one closet or that one room, one avenue of our life. Maybe it's money, maybe it's relationships, maybe it's career, 